0: Good morning. It's a joy to be here. It's a joy to read God's Word, and it's a joy that I don't have my stomach be attacking me. Um, This is the Sunday in the church here, traditionally called Palm Sunday. It's the week before um, the Lord's death and resurrection, and we celebrate at Resurrection Sunday or Easter. And what we're going to do in our next three services this morning... Good Friday service, and then Resurrection Sunday morning, is look at our Lord's passion through the eye of the Psalms, the song Book of Israel. So if you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 118, 118, we're going to begin our look there, and hopefully by the time we're done this morning, you'll see how this relates. But Jesus' death, burial, resurrection are tied up in prophecy, statements, predictions, types found in the Psalms, and I don't think... We can properly understand Palm Sunday, our Lord's riding into Jerusalem with cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, unless we look at the actual text of scripture they're quoting. What do they mean when they say that? I'd like to begin our time by reading Psalm 118 in its entirety, and we'll dive in. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was, pushing, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I hope now you begin to see some of the connection between this psalm and Palm Sunday. And it's it's a long text, and we are going to have to admittedly move somewhat quickly through it if we want to make our New Testament application. So as we look at this, its place in the Psalter is significant. This is the last of what are referred to as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, Psalms going up to the temple, Egyptian in that it references, all of them reference, the exodus from Egypt, Again, if that's not readily apparent, I trust it soon will be. This is a psalm for corporate worship. In fact, what we see in the opening verses is a call to corporate worship, where first Israel, the house of Aaron, all those who fear the Lord are called upon to cry out, his steadfast love endures forever. And even though we'll see one voice arises from this mass corporate worship, He's leading the procession. And the procession ultimately arrives at the temple in verse 19 or 20. Possibly the tabernacle, if this is David, it would be the same language. But arrives at the location of the ark of the Lord. And we get in verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And then... the second half of the psalm, worshiping the Lord from his house. So the first half of the psalm, the first 18 verses, is worshiping the Lord on the way to his house. And then, having arrived at the temple or tabernacle, worshiping the Lord from his house. That's the big sweeping motif. The other thing you'll notice is that the the, the psalm opens and closes with an identical verse. This is what's a literary form known as inclusio. It's a bracketing. And so, verse 1, we read... Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And in verse 29, we read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when you find a bracketing like that, it does a couple things. things. It, it sets aside a piece as a literary unit, so that lets us know, yes, this is the entire psalm. But additionally, it gives us the major theme of the psalm although I don't know if that's entirely necessary because of the first four verses just repeating again and again and again and again. What is the overall emphasis of Psalm 118? Praise and thanksgiving to Yahweh, to the Lord God. Why? He is good. Seen how? His steadfast love endures forever. That's, that's the overarching theme of worship and Praise. We also note from this psalm, this is a psalm not only of corporate worship being led by an individual, but it's tied with one of the high feasts of Israel. We see that down in verse 27. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. There's only three feasts and only one that's ultimately associated with a sacrifice. That'd be Passover. It begins to make more sense why this psalm was on the mind of the Jews as Jesus approached Jerusalem up the Mount Zion. This is a psalm associated with that festival with Passover, and we we check with the current Judaism and what we can see, and sure enough, this is one of the psalms they sing at Passover. This is a Passover psalm, corporate worship, led by an individual to the temple where a sacrifice is made, praise is given. That's that's the theme, all celebrating God's steadfast love. So let's, let's dive in and look at this, and we're moving quickly. I know, I know, we're moving quickly. Well, let's dive in and look at the first four verses, an antiphonal call to corporate praise. Antiphonal simply is the notion of call and response. And so here, one leader, or maybe even one tribe, is sets the overall tone, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, and then various tribes and peoples are called upon. You've done this at sing-alongs. Where they have certain people sing this, and certain people sing this. And so you can picture the, the cacophony of praise as first Israel and the, the, the priests, the house of Aaron, and then the God-fearers are all praising God for his steadfast love and endures forever. Now that reference, his steadfast love, is is a very particular term in in your Bibles. It first shows up in Exodus 34 when God reveals himself to Moses. Remember, we were looking at this a few weeks ago. Moses is up in the cleft of the rock. He has successfully interceded for Israel. And he says, show me your glory. God says, I'll show you my glory. And in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that word translated in your ESV Bibles as steadfast love is a specific Hebrew word, chesed. And it's a very particular love of God. There's a very real sense in which God loves the creation and he cares for the birds. And God loves the wicked; His rain falls on the just and the unjust. But God's chesed, His loyal or covenant love, is only ever spoken in relation to His covenant people by salvation. This is God's gospel love. This is the love we looked upon that God placed upon His elect in eternity past. This is His, the Jesus story Storybook Bible, His always and forever, never letting go love. And so, when when the psalmist is calling on Israel calling on the God fears to worship God, what he's saying is praise the Lord because he is good. That goodness is seen in his love of salvation, his love that provides salvation, that calls us to salvation, that chooses us in salvation. That's what's being called upon. We could praise God for so many reasons. This Psalm has singled out one: God's steadfast love. And we notice the participants, the focus is on the steadfast love of the Lord. The participants, the entire people of God. Now, this triplet, and there's a lot of triplets in this psalm, you'll notice, of first Israel, and then Aaron, and then those who fear God, is repeated in, in the psalms listed there. But the point of it is, is everybody who's God's people. So you've got Israel, the nation, corporately. All 12 tribes. And then the house of Aaron, the priests. And then, welcoming in the Gentiles as well, the God-fearers. This is the term given to Gentiles who converted to Judaism. So at the very beginning of this psalm, there's a welcome not just to the nation of Israel, but to all those who fear God, all those who honor his name. All of them are to gather, head to the temple in this procession for Passover. All of them are to come and celebrate his steadfast love. And from this choir of praise at the beginning, a voice arises, the king's triumphant testimony of praise the king's triumphant testimony of praise now why do i say it's a king internal evidence and some later internal evidence for that the first whoever this person is appears to be a military leader of israel as he goes on to give his personal testimony of god's deliverance look in verse 10 all the nations surrounded me in the name of the lord i cut them off this has got to be a military conflict we know the king was israel's military leader Additionally, in the New Testament, in all four Gospels, when they ascribe this psalm to Jesus and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they change it in Luke, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Clearly, the Jews of Jesus' day understood this voice speaking out for this extended solo to be Israel's king, possibly David. Maybe not, possibly David. Someone's even suggested Moses as a leader. But this is a a kingly figure who's in combat. And and the the celebration of deliverance is what a military victory. The king's triumphant testimony of praise. The king's triumphant testimony of praise. And then in verses 5 through 9, we see his distress. And in his distress, he relied on the Lord. In my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side, is my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That word there for distress literally is a tight space, which fits perfectly with the being surrounded all around in the next description. Literally, he's enclosed, he can't move, he's cramped. You think of claustrophobia, being stuck somewhere, that's the picture. He's in a tight space, and then what the ESV translates as he set me free is he set me in an open place. So the king is describing an intense period of anxiety and distress where he's just being hemmed in all sides, he can't move, he's cramped, and then the Lord just opens him up to wide open spaces, and he trusts on God. And then there's a lesson learned from this. He'll go on to give a a more concrete description of his distress. But before we move on to that in verse 10, he he wants to point out the conclusion. Trust in God. Verse 6 here. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? One of the reasons why um, people think David may have written this is David said something virtually word for word like this in a psalm we know is his. Psalm 56 In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? In God I trust, verse 11, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So this is either David repeating this refrain again or a later Davidic king picking up on this theme. The answer is man can kill you. Man can torture you. Man can lock you up in prison. But in comparison to God's steadfast love and God's deliverance and his ability to save... The king here is celebrating God's deliverance and calling on all of Israel, calling on all of us not to waver in our reliance on God. And it doesn't matter how tight the circumstances are. It doesn't matter how hemmed in you feel or how claustrophobic and fearful you are. Don't cease trusting in God. Verse 8 and 9 make this point explicitly. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And again, we're getting the totality. Whether it's a lowly man or a prince, don't trust in man. Trust in the Lord. By the way, those verses 8 and 9 are... This is just an interesting side bit. Psalm 118 is the middle chapter of our English Bibles. To the left of it is the shortest chapter. To the right of it is the longest chapter. Verses 8 and 9 are the middle verses of your English Bibles with 15,586 verses on either side of them. That means nothing because, (laughs) no, no, it means nothing. Don't get, ooh, this is deep. No. See, English ordering, the chapter divisions, the verse divisions, they were all done hundreds of years later. But it is interesting that God has so intended it, that the middle verses in our English Bibles is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And now, having given the moral of the story, the moral of the story is not that the king is a great fighter, and by my might, I, no, 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 no. I was going to go down for the count, and the Lord delivered me. Trust in the Lord. That's the lesson of the story. And now we get our next triplet. First, the triple call for Israel to worship the Lord. Now we see, in the name of the Lord, he was victorious. In the name of the Lord, he was victorious. Verses 10 through 13. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. You see that threefold repetition, I cut them off, I cut them off. Literally, I circumcised them. More more evidence in the, those who think this is David, because that would speak strongly at the Philistines, who are most frequently referred to as the uncircumcised, although all the goyim, all the nations would be that as well. He cut them off. They surrounded him. And now we get the picture. What specifically was that distress? What was that claustrophobic, you know, no room? No room? He, this was nations gathering around. And the king, in what appeared to be a hopeless situation, trusting in God, was able to have victory. And that's, that's the point. In the name of the Lord, he was victorious. And then he moves on, recounting how God made him victorious verses 14 through 16, we see the Lord was his strength as in the Exodus. The Lord was his strength as in the Exodus. Now keep your fingers here, but turn over to Exodus 15. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. The Lord is my strength and my song. And has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Notice our third triplet. And what the psalmist is doing here, what the king is doing here is quoting word for word, the song of the sea in Exodus 15. In Exodus 15, God has just destroyed the Egyptian army. Israel is surrounded by the strongest geopolitical force in the world in that day. And what appeared to be a hopeless case, they were hopelessly outnumbered against armed assailants. They had, didn't have arms. The Lord gave them victory. And in Psalm, in Exodus 15, Moses and the people of Israel sing a song of triumph to the Lord. And here in Psalm 118, it is quoted verbatim. Verse 1 of Exodus 15, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. And here's the quotation. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then look over at verse 6 of Exodus 15. The right hand of the Lord, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So back to Psalm 118. What's, what's going on? What the king's doing in citing Exodus 15 is he is comparing, in some sense, his deliverance that he's just experienced, the Exodus from Egypt. What he's saying is the deliverance where God just saved me and Israel, because remember the king represents Israel. So God's deliverance of the king is really God's deliverance of the nation of Israel. God's deliverance from this unspecified dilemma where the nation is gathered around is similar to in keeping with a further development of the salvation that he gave at Exodus. And that's why verses 14-16 through 16 drip with the song of Moses, the song of the sea. Verse 14, a direct quotation, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And then notice how the king's deliverance leads to the people's rejoicing. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly, but right hand refers to his strength, his power, his might. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So to recap, the king has first spoken about his distress, how he trusted it in God. God delivered him with the lesson, the, the moral, the application. You too trust in God. Don't trust in men. Don't trust in princes. Don't trust. We could add modern things. Don't trust in your bank account, your insurance policies, your, your medical covers. Trust in God. And then he specifically talks about how the nation surrounded him, and by God's strength, he was victorious. And then he cites the Song of the Sea. This is the same type of deliverance seen in the Exodus. This is the same demonstration of the Lord's steadfast love. And that's just the other thing you're seeing is it endures forever. He links his salvation to something that happened in the past, and we see the continuity. It's not just that God was good and his steadfast love was great on this day, it was also great in that day, and the assumption is every day in between. Leading to the king's own final um, summary. Of his distress and deliverance in verse 17 and 18. The king summarizes his distress and deliverance in verses 17 to 18. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. I got to pause here. Psalm 118 is also the favorite psalm of Martin Luther. And verse 17 was his favorite verse. He actually had it written on his wall in his study. I just want to read just read a brief quote from Luther about this psalm and this verse, how much he loved it. This is from Luther's introduction to his commentary on the Psalms. This is my own beloved psalm. Although the entire Psalter and all of Holy Scripture are dear to me as my only comfort and source of life, I fell in love with this psalm especially. I therefore call it my own. When emperors and kings, and wise and learned, and even saints could not aid me, this psalm proved a friend and helped me out of many great troubles. As a result of it, it is dearer to me than all wealth, honor, power of the pope, the Turk, or the emperor. I would be most unwilling to trade this psalm for all of it. I shall not die, but I shall live, and recount the deeds of the Lord. I just want to note two things from verses 17 and 18. The first is this, and there's a word missing in the outline. The king was spared for a purpose. You're asking God to help you out of a situation. You want deliverance. God gives deliverance, but with a purpose. I shall not die, but I shall recount the deeds of the Lord. One of the reasons God gives grace and deliverance is so that we can tell other people about it. And so one of the things I would challenge you to do is, is are you sharing to others God's deliverance in your life? Or, or do you not want to share your own business? You just want to keep your, you know, just keep it professional. Here the king is celebrating. Let me tell you how God was good to me. Let me tell you what God did for me. Let me tell you the deliverance God gave to me. I won't die. I will live to recount the deeds of the Lord. And then verse 18, we get a reinterpretation of the entire event. Right? Remember back a couple of weeks ago we talked about God's sovereignty, human responsibility, how God stands behind all things? What he just described as his great distress, the very thing that God had to deliver him from, the very thing where the nations gathered around him, he now calls the Lord's discipline. He sees the hand of the Lord in it. God is sovereign even over this king's calamity. The Lord has disciplined me severely. He has not given me over to death. He sees in this event, the very event he's crying out, God save me, God deliver me. He's seeing the sovereign hand of God over this. This is God's discipline. Do do we see the trials, the calamities, the difficulties in our life as absolutely things to cry out to God for help for, but also the Lord's hand chastening us He was disciplined, but not given over to death. He was spared in order to tell of the deeds of the Lord. He was disciplined, but not given over to death. And now this throng of Israel and God-fearers has finally arrived at the tabernacle or the temple. The king still leading the the procession. And we know it's it's an individual because we're seeing first-person pronouns. I, I, I. They're going to switch to we's here in a few verses. As a whole congregation joins in. But right now, it's open to me, the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. I and mean, what we get is the, the, the charge and the counter charge. You can almost picture the people at the gates responding, verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. Why? Why are these gates called the righteous gates? Because the righteous God dwells within. Remember, God's Shekinah glory, His localized presence in the ark, the mercy seat, was within the tabernacle, within the temple. This is the God who is holy, holy, holy. And so the gates are rightly called the righteous gates, the gates of righteousness. And then we learn the standard that one has to meet to enter in. Righteousness. Well, in the very next verse... King makes it clear, it's not that he's sinless and righteous. He makes it clear, if he's able to enter these gates, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. So we've moved on to the second half of the psalm, worshiping God from his house, and we get the request for entry, and the response, only the righteous may enter. Only the righteous may enter the presence of the righteous God. And he declares that it's not his own righteousness, but God's that enables him to enter. I well, want you to notice another important shift here. Up until this point in the psalm, up until verse 21, a lot of things have, said, have been said about God, right? But nothing has actually been said to God. Go, go look it over. So we hear that the right hand of the Lord does valiantly, verse 15. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. But no actually talking to God. There's been a lot of talking about God, a lot of singing about God, but no actually addressing to God. And very significantly, it's not until they get to God's house of worship. It's not until he enters the gates that now he begins talking to God. I give thanks to you. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. You see point B here, the king praises the Lord from his house. And finally, the desire of his heart is fulfilled. He wants to go to God's house to offer praise. He's, he's there, and now he begins to speak directly to God to praise God. The king praises the Lord from his house. And then, the people who are with him, and maybe even the people who are already there, they join in, and we now know that this is no longer the king speaking, but the entire choir, because the pronoun shifts to Plural. And this most famous verse quoted in the New Testament again and again and again, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And all the way down through verse 27 is plural pronouns. This is the day that the Lord has made let us rejoice And be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And then you'll see in the closing, the king returns. You are God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God, singular pronoun. So verses 22 to 27 make up. The people praise the Lord from his house. Whether this is some of the group that was already there, the priests, whether this is the throng that came with him, people. Now raise up the voice. Maybe the king with the people as well, but we're dealing with a choir, a chorus of praise. What do they praise God for? Because this, this section, 22 to 27, this is where all the New Testament citations, except for one, are found. And this is where the links of Palm Sunday are found. Well, first, they praise the Lord that he has exalted their king and nation. He has exalted their king and nation. That's the meaning of the The verse, the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Egypt was the geopolitical power of the day. It was the nation builder. How did Egypt regard Israel? Mighty, powerful, slaves. They were not regarded. And yet the Lord, through His deliverance and His steadfast love, made Israel into a nation ultimately that Egypt would do homage to at times in Israel's career. This rejected stone to come, and for us who know the Bible and know about the kingdom to come, the cornerstone of God's plan of salvation and a geopolitical kingdom that will come when Christ returns and rules from David's throne. Moreover, This king, and if this is indeed David, Samuel. Did Samuel esteem David highly when he went to visit Jesse's sons? No. Even his parents didn't. They left him out with the sheep. But probably more to the point is this immediate conflict with the nations, where the nations apparently thought they could surround this king and this nation and make easy spoil of them. No, the the king, and by virtue of the king, the nation was thought little of. Yet the Lord has taken this rejected, overlooked stone and turned it into the cornerstone, the foundation stone. It's interesting, in fact, that when the temple is rededicated in Ezra, it appears as though they sing this song. Listen to Ezra three ten through eleven. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets the Levites the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David king of Israel and they sang responsively or you could say antiphonally they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel And all the people shouted with great joy when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The people praise this king as he's coming in and this victory he's coming to celebrate. They see in that God taking this, this despised people, this despised nation, and making them the foundation, the cornerstone from which the rest of the building is erected. They praise the Lord that He's exalted their king and nation. Second, they pray for the Lord to save and establish them. You see, recounting God's deliverance only emboldens us to ask for more of it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success like You've been doing. As Your steadfast love will continue to do, no doubt. We want it and we ask for it. Hebrew, by the way, for save us, you might recognize, is hoshana'ah, or hosanna. When they're crying hosanna on Palm Sunday, they're crying save us. People ask for greater and continued salvation. And then they bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They bless the king. And this is critical for understanding this psalm. They understand at this point, the soloist is not soloing. This is the choir, the chorus. And here is the one who trusted in God. Here is the one through whom the Lord worked this mighty salvation comparable to the exodus from Egypt. And looking at him as he's there praising God, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They bless the king comes in the name of the Lord. And they see that his faithfulness and his trust in the Lord is the the grounds, humanly speaking, for this deliverance. God has saved them. He has saved their people through this man's faithfulness. And then they call for the festal sacrifice to be offered. They call for the festal sacrifice to be offered. First, they invoke the Aaronic blessing. Um, in, in Numbers, you'll often hear me close our worship service citing this as well. In Numbers six, thirty-two, twenty-three 23 to 25, the Lord tells Aaron and his sons how they're to bless the people of Israel. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the house of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And so here, the Lord. God has made his light to shine on us. And again, they're referencing the deliverance that God has wrought through the king. Through through this act, God's light has shone upon us. And now that we're here, and now that we're at the temple, the, the highlight, the culmination, the crescendo of this worship service is to take place. Remember, this is the Passover, this is a nationwide festival and worship service. It's time to give the sacrifice. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And the, the, the Passover is conducted. The, the sacrifice is made. And then, to close the psalm, the king closes with praise of thanksgiving, reiterating the theme. We've reached the climax. We got to the temple, we got in, the chorus responded, the sacrifice is brought forth to the altar, it's given. The king closes, you are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's Psalm 118. It begins opening call of praise, testimony from the king of God's deliverance, arrival at the gates, demand of entry, entrance, his worship begins, the choir picks up, they praise God, they bless the king, they bring forth the sacrifice, and then the king closes his own praise and thanksgiving. So keep your sheet here. Now let's try to make some sense of the New Testament. And yes, I think I've managed my time. I think we can do this. All right. Miracles do happen, Pastor Daniel. Please turn to Luke 13. Please turn to Luke 13. and we'll just conduct our study through Luke. We'll get here in a few years, I'm sure. Luke 13:31. Okay? At that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, "Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you," which is no empty threat. This Herod has already killed at John the Baptist. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You are not willing. Behold... Your house, and Jerusalem's house, is its temple. is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is Jesus saying there? What he's saying, let's take our steps, until you are willing to ascribe to me, Psalm 118, specifically, verse 26. You're not going to see me again. What's that mean? And that's why we took our time to go through Psalm 118. Because if we remember, at Psalm 118, at that point, the people from the temple were praising the faithful and victorious King. They were, they were praising God for the salvation he wrought through this one. Blessed is he who trusted God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what is Jesus saying? They must recognize that Jesus is the triumphant King of Israel. They must see that Jesus is the one who supremely trusted in the Lord. They must see that Jesus is the one through whom the Lord worked his mightiest salvation. And they must recognize that Jesus will be the one to lead his people to the true worship of God in the true house of God. Remember, the king's the one leading this procession. Okay. Let's see if that happens. Turn, turn to Luke 19. And here we finally get to the triumphal entry. Okay. We're finally at the triumphant entry. Pick it up in verse twenty-eight. I want to read all the way through the end of the chapter. Okay. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. But he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, "Go into the village in front of you, wherein you are entering, and you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here." If anyone asks you, why are you you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent ahead went away and found it just as he told them. Then, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, Jesus' disciples saw him as the fulfillment of Psalm 118, but we don't hear anything in Luke about Israel, of Jerusalem, do we? Which then leads to Jesus' lament. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Sound familiar? And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and you will not leave. they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation and he entered the temple. And began to drive out those who sold, saying, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. They did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So what's going on here? What's going on? A number of things. In This passage, a week before, roughly a week before Jesus' crucifixion and death on the cross, what would be happening in Jerusalem? All the lambs that would have been raised in Bethlehem and the surrounding towns were being brought into the city. And the Israelites would be bringing their own lambs into their own home. Because remember, the Passover lamb had to stay for a number of days in your own home first. So in the backdrop of that taking place, here's Jesus entering Jerusalem. Jesus was Israel's king, and he was the one who did supremely trust in the Lord. Now, there is some, some slight difference here because in the, in Psalm 118, everything the king has experienced and gone through is in the past. His distress was in the past. His conflict with his enemies was in the past. His deliverance was in the past. For Jesus, it's days ahead. Because he would be surrounded by enemies on the cross. We'll see on Friday in Psalm 22, many mighty bulls, bulls of Bashan, have surrounded me, mocking him, saying, this is the one who trusted in the Lord. Let him come down from there, and we will believe in him. Jesus was the one who supremely trusted in the Lord. He would be surrounded by enemies on the cross. And Jesus would lead his people into the true worship of God. You can read that in the book of Hebrews, how Jesus has entered not into the place made with hands, True temple. He invites us to come in with him. Israel's king was coming to Jerusalem, to the temple, to remove unrighteousness from it. Because what did we learn from Psalm 118? These are the righteous gates. Who gets to enter them? Only the righteous can enter through them. Well, Jesus enters in, and what is the first? Because he comes, this is what he does. He comes up in the triumphal entry, he enters Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and gets the unrighteousness out. Because, as Psalm 118 says, only the righteous, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. And Jesus comes to the temple. He's on his way to the temple. The people recognize him and they claim that of him. Israel's king, furthermore, was coming in the name of the Lord to save his people in what would be a newer and greater exodus. Remember, we already saw that. When he went up on the mountain and met with Moses and Elijah, they spoke with him about the exodus which he was about to perform in Jerusalem. What took place in the exodus from Egypt? The people were delivered from slavery and set free the blood of the Lamb. It's Jesus accomplished in Jerusalem a few days hence? The people would be set free from slavery. Not a physical slavery, but slavery to sin. And then once again, by the blood of the Passover lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5 says, Jesus, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. Israel's king is coming to the temple to offer a sacrifice. So the king comes with the whole climax of Psalm 118 is the, the sacrifice being offered. What is Jesus coming to Jerusalem to do? And here's where the twist comes at its fullest. Here the king is present while the sacrifice is offered. Here Jesus is the sacrifice. Let me read a quote to you. Um, The occasion which the psalm marked in Old Testament times was evidently a festival. The day which the Lord had made It could be a Sabbath, but the word for festal procession, points to it being one of the three annual pilgrim feasts, Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacles. We can glimpse the company speaking here from the temple courts, blessing him as he enters. What those who took part in such a ceremony could never have foreseen was that it would one day suddenly enact itself on the road to Jerusalem, unrehearsed, unliturgical, and with explosive force. In that week, when God's realities broke Through his symbols and shadows, the horns of the altar would become the arms of the cross. And the festival itself found fulfillment in Christ our Passover. Let's go to one more passage in Luke. And we'll be done. Turn to Luke 20. Verse 9. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruits of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not because they understood what he was saying. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The sad irony is this. Those who were opposed to Jesus were much like those who were opposed to Israel and their king in the past. They, they esteemed Him little. And at the resurrection, God would establish Jesus as His Son, proving to all His claim. At the resurrection, God would make that claim certain and undeniable so that the Apostle Peter in Acts... Chapter 4. Let's say this. Verses Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name do you do this? But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means... This man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's how Psalm 118 factors into the Palm Sunday and Jesus' work. It predicts the King through whom God would work a mighty salvation for his people. A king who would trust in God and not ultimately be given over to death. A king who would taste the Lord's discipline and wrath, and yet live. A king who would lead his people into the true worship of God, into the true temple of God, where sacrifice would be offered. What Psalm one eighteen does not show awareness of is that the king would offer himself as the sacrifice. I'm going to close in prayer, but ask the worship team to come up because we're going to sing one more song. I, I can't go through a passage like this and not need to praise God for His steadfast love. So let's pray, Lord God. We just praise you for how your Scripture holds together as one mighty and true word, and words spoken over a thousand years before Jesus was born, fulfilled spontaneously, perfectly, specifically. Lord, it's it's my prayer that we would not be those who esteem Jesus like the rulers of His day, who viewed Him as a rejected stone. But Lord, to see Him as You have made Him, the cornerstone on which You build Your church, on which You build Your people, and on which we are to build our lives. So Lord God, we just pray that You would Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe that we could celebrate him who comes in the name of the Lord. Please stand as we sing our closing song, All Glory Be to Christ.